Hello, America. Welcome to Your Leo Nation. I am the chief, Mark Garrett. Now, I may be the chief, but I have the boss sitting across from me to, today uh, to help me reinforce what we believe here that the uh, Leo Nation, and that is the rule of law, a civil society, and self responsibility. I like to welcome my big brother, Danny Garrett. Danny, what's happening, bro? I'm glad to be here today. But uh oh, I got to start off with the story here. I don't mean to hog the show, but when you say the boss, now I don't know, Mark, if you ever realized this, but you were mom's favorite. Now, one story that I tell everybody, and I don't know why this thing is just embedded in my brain, is I'm 67 years old, it's never gone away. You must have been probably a year and a half old. We're living in in LA off of 116th place. Now, one thing about me, I was, I'm seven and a half years older than you are. And so for seven and a half years, I ran a night scam in the household. Okay. That was my domain. Everybody catered to me. I, I was, you know, I was the guy in charge. I was a little baby brother that everyone took care of. And all of a sudden you came along and kind of ruined my scam there. So I remember Mark, even though you could talk, you never did, only when you had to. And I, I never remember this, this night. We were in the kitchen, and um, you were, mm, 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 and you were pointing at um, the, the um, cabinet because you wanted something. And Mom comes in. She goes, Danny, she goes, Mark wants cereal. Feed him. And I'm going, well, Mom, he needs to ask for it. So she walks out and I'm looking at you, Mark, what do you want? And you're mm, 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 and you're pointing there and you aren't saying anything and you're just pointing. And I'm really getting frustrated. So I'm calling mom and mom's yelling at me, telling me to get whatever you want, but you aren't telling me because you're doing that on purpose. Of course, you know, you got your scam going now. And so I remember, okay, you want some cereal. So I'm, I'm, I'm mad at you. I'm like, okay, you want some cereal? Okay. So I get the cereal, I put in the bowl, I put the milk there, put the spoon in front of you and you look at me and you take your arm and you knock that bowl off that table and it's I'm, I'm going what is wrong with you and so I'm yelling come on mama 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 you know work through the, the serum on the floor Danny clean it up and you sit, sit, sit with this smug look on your face going this is my domain now brother and I'm going ain't this a blip my <laughs> scam just got so you, when you talk about the boss that's my boss story, okay? Now, now look, for those of you who are actually doing this one, you see, and Eddie can hear, but you see his charisma and you see his influence he's had over me. This is one of the one of the greatest storytellers you're ever going to come across in your life, and, and this is why I brought him on. Now, I've heard that story before, but I had forgotten about it. So I don't know if I'm embarrassed or if I'm proud about that scam I pulled, but... By the way, it only worked for so long. Right, exactly. It only worked for so long. It wore off. And man, when it wore off, it wore off in a big way. So uh, it will, we'll probably get to some of that. But, you know, speaking of stories, Danny, and that, that is a great one. And of course, our sisters would reinforce those types of stories about our respective childhoods. But we do have some great stories. You have some great stories. And like everything else we do here at... Uh, Leo Nation, the stories you tell 
maybe sometimes the facts that we recite, it's all about law enforcement and where it's, whether it's external, it's internal, it's self-responsibility, uh, it's all about law enforcement. And we grew up at a time when law enforcement was under attack, our society was under attack in, in ways we didn't see until about really 50 years later. And, uh, and you and I had been through some stuff. I almost said through some shit, but I did it. So, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I told the story before, like, and you just, uh, mentioned, we grew up in Southeast LA. A lot of people know it as Watts cause that's about where it was right across the street from Nickerson gardens. And it was a hellhole back during the mid sixties. And, uh, but again, you were seven years, you are seven and a half years older than I am. So you go back to 1965 in the watch riots and you were about 10 years old. And you have a pretty good recollection of that, do you not? Yes, absolutely. And, and you know, this tells about, you know, what you recall. On well, it was a, I remember it was a hot August night. <laughs> I was out for, it was mom, myself. We had a neighbor. I think it was, remember Miss Kincaid? I sure do. Um, Straight, yeah, strange woman. Strange, very strange woman. You know, we would call her devil woman now or something. You know, she looked like the devil, but you know, Miss Miss Kincaid, you know. Um, we were out front and I I believe Cheryl and June might have been out front too. Our that, sisters. Yeah, our sisters. I remember it was a really hot evening. Now, of course, we didn't know what was going on. <clears throat> what we you know, we lived off 116th place and we were just east of um avalon and we could see down the street that there was stuff that was happening but you know in in LA where we grew up stuff happened and so you weren't really ever you know whatever so as we're talking about what's going on and, and we hear this ruckus going on all of a sudden down the street comes probably three or four black and whites high speed lights are on sirens are on and these guys have like this heavy enforcement. I mean, it wasn't like a two-man unit, one-man unit. There were like four police officers. We're going, God, what the heck is going on? And so eventually, you know, you turn the TV on, and now all of a sudden we see LA's exploding. And it didn't explode right away, but we there was like a big riot going on. People were fighting, whatever officers were out there kind of tussling and going on. Things really didn't explode until the next day. And that's when they they went down to Will Rogers Park and stuff started splitting down there. And then from there, of course, they went down to 103rd and they were, they burned 103rd down. They burned a Safeway down off in pure. I mean, well, they just burned the city down mm -hmm. pretty much. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and so my recollection of that is just really just now, of course, mom and dad kept us in the house. Dad had to keep going to work. Mom stayed home mom. And so we had to stay in the house. Mm -hmm. Of course, that was mom's rules. Right. You know, when you're nine years old, you're indestructible. Mm -hmm. And so you just think that, hey, the people are just having a good time. We want to go out there and see what's going on. But mom said, no, you got to stay in the house. Mm -hmm. And um, so, of course, you know, you weren't going out anywhere at your age. And um, I was having you make cereal for me. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Did yeah. <laughs> it can burn, but you better feed <laughs> right. me. You got to feed it. Absolutely. And now we're in my, yeah, I remember uh, an incident that happened during the riots at the house, you know, because it was super hot in there, August. 
And of course, you know, we didn't have air conditioning in the house. You know, air conditioning was open up all the windows. Mm -hmm. And then we, of course, you know, we had the old fans and stuff that just circling out of air. Now, I remember uh, one morning we get up, daddy went to work. We get up, I get up in the morning, it's super hot. And um, I go to plug the fan in. Now, when I plug the fan, I don't know what happened, but the switch caught fire. So it caught fire, it went out on its own. And so mom calls daddy at work. You know, at the time, you know, he's working at, at the Henry company. She calls him. Well, guess what? He tells her to call the fire department. Now she, and she does. And she, lo and behold, guess who shows up? And I, I'm surprised that during this time they showed up. And, um, but they come with all these engines. They come with all these PD, National Guards hanging off the fire. And for a kid like me, it was exciting. And I'm going, these fire trucks, the National Guard, they had the streets blocked off. They had a chopper that, that came over the head real low. It circled, made sure everything was all code for, and then it flew off. And uh, at that time, where I later found out, since I, now I'm, I'm a retired fireman, that's when the Los Angeles City Fire Department created their task force system. Because before they used to just run with an engine or a truck, but during the riots, since they had to double up so many uh, apparatus, they created a task force, meaning a task force was a big ladder truck and two engines. They also considered a task force. And that's where LA developed that system. Mm -hmm. But the riots, for me, you know, when you're a nine-year-old kid, you don't really understand what's going on and the impact. It was just, we understood that people were angry. And I didn't even really understand that, the, the political issue about all this. Mm -hmm. I just thought that, Police officers got into a tussle with people and they got mad. So they decided to burn stuff. Mm -hmm. I never, if for a nine year old kid, you don't think the, the political aspects of it, you just, you just see things burning and, um, you know, but I was never really afraid. Um, I don't think that my sister showed, you know, June, our, our sister, I should say, I don't think any of them were afraid. No one ever really. The only people that we were afraid for was mom. Right. Your mom looked Caucasian. Right. And so we didn't want her to go out anywhere. Right. But, uh, you know, but I never, I never expressed any fear for daddy going to work. Cause you know, mm -hmm. just to me, you know, our father was, uh Oh, our father was indestructible. Mm -hmm. World war II veteran, um, mm -hmm. came from the South, um, as a little kid, um, and so for me, he was indestructible. So I never really feared for my dad's, you know, for, for daddy's, you know, safety. Right. It was really for mom. And mom, we don't want you to go out because you look white. Right. And you might get attacked. But outside of that, um, it's, it's right. It, it was, it was the excitement factor. It's funny you talk about the LA city fire and of course later on LA county fire task forces that they developed, you know, and it was out of circumstances right. like this. And, and the reason I just touched on that specific thing you talked about is because it's so important for people to realize how things evolve, law enforcement, fire, first responders, why we who were in public service for so long do certain things the way that we do them or did them, where those things came from. It goes back to one word I hype on a lot, Danny, that's perspective and it's appreciation for history and evolution you know, how things get to where they are, you know, fast forwarding a little bit is get into the late sixties and you're, you're in your, your real 
formative years. Now I'm catching up with you. Now I'm about, you know, you know, seven years old. We get to say 1970, but we're seeing now a real, you know, uh, fruition of just general crime now and, and, and the, the birth of gangs, namely the Crips, the Bloods. I talked about this in a previous episode with, with the uh, deputy district attorney, John McKinney, who's, who's running for DA to hopefully out that monster Gascon. But we talked about, we talked about the general crime wave that, that came out of the, the, the 1960s and you were around, of course, now mom was smart enough to keep you out of high school down the street, lock high. And she, every day dr drove you back all the way out to basically LAX to Westchester high school. Right. But still, uh, I know that as a teenager, you still had to be influenced or at least affected that's more from from that gang activity where we actually lived is that right right well you know and this is why i tell people when people ask me questions about growing up in in la you know one you got to understand that it's almost like two different time periods it is different time periods because when i grew up in south central la you know they used to call it southeast south central la when I grew up there, remember, these guys were post-World War II veterans. They were Korean War veterans. The Vietnam War was just starting. So those guys really were just young guys going in. But these fathers that were coming out of here and the mothers, they were all a part of the greatest generation. And so these guys were they're coming out of the South. They're migrating here to California. Um, they had already experienced stuff that these young kids that haven't been on since breakfast that they talk in this day and age, they talk about now about racism and, and, and it always kind of just bewilders me because I'm thinking, now I know my mom and dad experienced racism and I was born in a period where civil rights was going on and things were really kind of getting better and stuff. And so I, I never, I, I can never understand why kids talk so much about racism now, but that's a different subject matter. But Growing up in L.A., I always tell people, remember, we, we had moms and dads that were together. We had dads that worked. Moms, most of the moms were stay-at-home moms. They were heavily involved in school activities, PTAs. They volunteered. I know that our mom did. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so the kids were raised differently, but somewhere along the line, those parents lost, I don't know if to say they lost control or they got so involved in that Amer chasing that American dream that they cut their kids somehow. And, uh, but for me growing up in South Central LA, like I said, I actually liked it. I, I mean, I, I loved it. I mean, because that's all I knew, but my parents kept me and I keep saying my, our parents. I know for me, at least, they really kept control of what I did, which I'm so thankful for. Mm -hmm. You know, daddy worked hard. He worked a lot of overtime. And mom was a disciplinarian. One thing that I, I liked about mom was that mom didn't negotiate. I see parents nowadays, you know, they count to three or 10 or a thousand, you know, the kids, are, you know. Mom was pretty much do it. And then you didn't do it. It was like, bang. Okay. 
And I don't mean immediate consequences. Exactly. And I don't mean can't watch TV or use your Xbox because mm-hmm. we didn't have you in that right. back then. Right. It was basically get whatever weapon that she could find mm-hmm. that can inflict as much damage on you as possible. Now, <laughs> I got I got to chime in here because that's not an over exaggeration. Right. In fact, that's it's, right. It's, redund- it's not an exaggeration. Right. Whether it was a broom handle, it was a wire coat hanger. I remember a lotion bottle that she tossed at you. Now, thank God for you, she was a bad aim and went to the dining room window. Absolutely. But but mom would attach herself to whatever weapon was available. Exactly. To inflict retribution for failing to follow her rules. Absolutely. And of course, as kids, we thought that she was overdoing it. Right. And and, and by the way, probably sometimes she did. But like you said, Danny, you're grateful for it because it's exactly what kept our asses in line and it made us different than a lot of our peers that were associated with early on in life so anyway but go ahead and continue no and and you're absolutely correct you know it's just like when you talked about um, our local schools you know mom and dad were very they were they were very insightful they they saw the future before the future was happening um when she took Cheryl and June. Now, Jeannie was old, quite a bit older than us. You know, Jeannie was, what, nine years older than Cheryl. Yeah. So Jeannie went to, she went to Gompers. Now, when Gompers was mixed, you had whites, you had Hispanics, you had blacks. Then she went to, um, and then Jeannie eventually went to Fremont High School once again. I remember picking up Jeannie from school when I was a little boy. When I got out of school, mom would pick me up and go pick Jeannie up. Well, I see white kids on campus. That's right. at Fremont. Now you, you don't see that at all anymore. It's that's just that's gone. But mom saw the changing demographics. She saw the changing educational policies. Mom saw a lot of things changing, and she saw that changing in where the area that we grew up. And so mom made an early decision to get us out of that because it was all about success for her. And so, you know, she pulled, she pulled Cheryl and June out, put them in Ascension. I, I fall, I went to Ascension. When they were done at Ascension, we went to Overwrite. Now, which, uh, when, when Cheryl and June went to Overwrite, it was all white. Mm-hmm. I think Cheryl and June and maybe a couple other black kids were the only black kids there, but it was all white. When, when I got there, Cheryl had already finished. It was June, myself, and I remember two of the blacks when I first saw it there. And going back a little bit, just so everybody knows, Ascension is a, is a private Catholic elementary right. school. Right. And which was not far from her house over in Vermont. Right. But it was just that it was, it was a private, uh, uh, parochial school and it, it, it shared mom's values. Right. We're not Catholic. And I went to Catholic elementary school right. later on. We'll, right. we'll get to maybe, but it was all Danny. It had nothing to do with race. It just so happened that the schools that mom related to. Um, as far as values, as far as teachings, beliefs, uh, happen to have, uh, white kids going there. Right. But it was about the values that they, they supported absolutely. and perpetuated. Right. Absolutely. And, and, and that's absolutely correct. It, it, it had nothing to do with, with race. Mom wanted to put us in a winning position and that's what it was all about. Um, gorillas could have gone there. She didn't, you know, and she didn't really care she, well, when you got there, at least one gorilla was yeah, going there. Yeah. I was a head gorilla, yeah. you know, and, uh, <laughs> you know, but, uh, you know, it, and the, the thing is, is that, um, I really 
when I got there, I really felt comfortable in that environment. It was a very calm environment. I liked it, you know, and, and I'm not trying to knock anything. It was just a, a really good learning environment. And that's what I think, what, that's what mom wanted. Mom just wanted a good learning environment. And that's what she wanted. And, um, and she just, she saw trends change and she was up on that. And so um, I, th that's one thing that I really, really, really thank my parents for is having that insight and the courage to do that. That's right. And, you know, and um, uh, she, you know, she kind of put us in a, in, in a situation where it was a little intimidating because you, you, you're, I'm, I'm used to a certain environment and also I'm ripped out of there and then she puts us in a different, different environment. But I really appreciate it because it helped build my character because she told all of us, you're going to go there and you're going to like it and you're going to compete. You aren't going to come back home. You aren't going to complain. You aren't going to blame, whatever. This is what you're going to do. And, and but those are, those are the orders. Yep. And, um, and so we couldn't come back and point it. Now you, sure. Jean, all different. I, I was the, I was a resident <laughs> chokester idiot, whatever you want to call me. And I get it. I was, you know, you know, I went to school with the number of my chest. Okay. It's, you know, <laughs> you know. And so, uh, you know, they told me I was going to be working at San Quentin, but not as a guard, you know, uh, you know, but, you know, by, by, by the grace of God and, and, and mom's, mom's heavy hand, I, I, I voted that, but, you know, um, and that's why I appreciate about our mother was, was just because she just instilled, instilled those values on us and she didn't let us. She didn't, she didn't let us off the hook on right. that. And I, and, and that really, I just, for me was, a, was my foundation built. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because it, I, I want to hear more from you about this and we will, we're, we're going to jump into our, our geographical move that we made in 1973. Um, but, and I'm going to get a little, a little bit in front here later on when we did move. And I started elementary school in Alhambra. I did not start it, but transferred to that school mm -hmm. going into fourth grade. And it was an all white school. It, I mean, virtually all white, Hispanics and a couple of blocks. But for the most part, it was a white school, Ramona Elementary School in Alhambra. And after one semester, my, my mom said, nope, uh-uh. She couldn't stand some of the faculty. She couldn't stand some of the things that were being taught. And what did she do? She took me out of that all white school and put me in a Catholic elementary school whose values that she more related to. So again, I just want to reinforce had nothing to do with race. It was all about right, values. Right. So speaking about, you know, speaking, uh, you know, about that move, Danny. So 1973, what's now the, the 105 freeway here in Southern California, pretty much goes from Los Angeles International Airport to about, you know, 25 miles inland. And uh, that freeway, bought her house, actually the state bought her house, uh, for the construction of that freeway in 1972, they gave us a year to move in 73, we moved to El Hermba, which is in San Gabriel Valley, about 10, 15 miles Northeast of downtown Los Angeles. And at the time, El Hambra was about 90% white. And now here you are as a 18 year old. At 73 moving into this. So now you're, you're like in your full blown 
18 year old hormones out of control. I got to be out with the dudes. I'm, I'm chasing girls. This is like hard guy. Everything we think about when we were growing up about an 18 year old guy and you move into a neighborhood we do that looks nothing like we're nothing like where we grew up. Tell me about your experiences growing up from 73 in Alhambra, just, you know, on the social level and talk about a couple of cop stories, which are great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a couple of cop stories. Oh my gosh. Like I said, I was the kind of black sheep, but one moving to Alhambra was for me, this is for me. It was, um, I'm trying to find the, 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 the right word to use. It was very liberating. Because I lived in an environment that I was used to. I was born and raised in that environment. But when I moved to Alhambra, Alhambra was kind of a, a utopia. Because when I got there, there was, at least to my knowledge, there was no gangs. Um, I got on my bike and I rode the streets. I never feared anybody jumping me. Um, I... I just, you know, um, I didn't even feel out of place. Like you said, you know, in Alhambra, actually in Alhambra, they had an area where there was a, uh, a black populace, right? but it was, it wasn't, it was away from where we lived. So, you know, you had to travel to get there a little bit. I mean, Alhambra is not that big of a city, but nevertheless, they, they did have blacks living there, but it wasn't, those faces weren't a regular sight on the streets. Mm -hmm. And so I would have been considered something that was unusual in Alhambra. Not out of the ordinary, mm -hmm. but just unusual. And uh, for me, it was, it was a very liberating move. I just felt like I had a second lease on life because I felt like I can go out here and just, and even though growing up in LA, we ran the streets, but we ran the streets for me, at least on a very limited basis. And when we're, and, 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 and you and I can relate to this because, and I, I, hate, I don't want to, you know, really revert back much, but when we talk about gangs in LA, I don't, you and I didn't have experience with that because we didn't run with that crowd. We weren't allowed. We weren't allowed. And so I, you know, I see documentaries, I see programs and you see movies with the depiction of the gangs and everything else and all these, you know, you, you see all this stuff happening. That wasn't my lifestyle because I didn't run the streets at a certain, at, at nighttime, I had to be in doing homework and everything else. I, I just had to be in the house. And so for me running the streets, this wasn't on Saturdays and Sundays I could, but Monday through Friday, I was at school playing sports, coming home and doing homework. So I never really had that experience with that. So I didn't really have much knowledge of it. We knew about Crips. We knew about Bloods. I knew about APBs, Atom Park Boys, things like that. You know, you knew about where the gangs were. You just avoided them. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just like with the police department in LA, you know, people have a, a super negative view on that. I never did. Right. Because I never had police encounters when I was small. I just didn't do anything bad. And so I was, you know, I was a, practical joker okay i no, trust me I, I i i did my stuff but i i didn't do anything that was law breaking i did stuff that pissed the neighbors off 
Okay. <laughs> and and when they beat me, they call my mom and then she beat me some more, you know. But, you know, we weren't thugs. You know, we weren't the we weren't the type of kids that went out and caused problems like that. So for us, our interaction with the police department was almost zilch. Right. Um now, I did get two tickets when I was a kid for speeding, well, and I still speed, but I, now I have a badge in Athlete. Okay. <laughs> you know, that, that, badge is, that badge is worn out now, so, you know, I can't even use your card anymore. So, you, know, you retired on me. My God, you know, this, this world's collapsing around me, you know, but, you know, so, um, mm. but like I said, I never had any really bad, inter I, I never had any bad interactions, you know, with the police because now, Moving forward now to Alhambra, Alhambra was just a place where I could just go out, ride my bike, walk the streets. I never thought about any gangs running up behind me, shooting at me, yelling at me, asking me what clique I'm from. I was just a normal kid. Now I got to be a normal. Now, now once again, now I started college at East LA College. So that, once again, that took up my time playing football and stuff, but Alhambra move was, was a phenomenal move for me. Now, let me clarify, Danny, you're, you're telling me that you were more concerned, at least historically from, you know, our, our time in Southeast Los Angeles, South Central Los Angeles, you were more concerned about gangs affecting your safety than you were law enforcement. Oh, absolutely. This, this can't be true. I, it's, it's impossible. It, 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 I mean, are you, are you telling me that back then to this day, you don't think that law enforcement is the number one threat to your safety in this country? That's what, is that what you're saying? Uh, law enforcement. And when yes, I, I'm, when, yes, I'm being a little sarcastic. Oh, I can't help myself. Oh, oh, absolutely. I'm just trying, I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to reserve myself. So you yes, don't I get thrown off sarcastic. Folks, so you don't get thrown off the air here yes. yeah, because <laughs> if, if, if you guys took the reins off me, trust me, the world would probably hey, hate me. I, I, you, and you're released. You're free to go. I mean, trust me, you're, you're, you're going to get a lot of negative feedback. If, if I really let loose here, I doubt it. When I, when I lived in LA, the police actually were the heroes. Because when you were walking the street and you saw black and white, you got relief because you knew, okay, there's help right there. I mean, I never, now I lived, I was born in 1955. We moved in 1973. I was 17 years old. I turned 18 in October. So I'm 17. So, so 17 years, I grew up in South Central LA. I walked the streets. I went to school there. You know, the, I have friends there and everything else. Now, once again, my geographic area that I roamed was limited because you knew crossing certain areas, you just didn't do it. It's like we lived kitty corner from Dickerson Gardens, right. one of the worst housing projects in LA. And it always has been. And, Still always, is. and it always will be. Yeah. That, Jordan Downs, Imperial Courts. I mean, all these things, these were just lousy, lousy projects. So you did not go into, even though a couple of times I ventured in to Nixon guards. Remember Brian Gardner? Of course. Because, you know, Brian was an idiot. So, it's, you know, you know Brian, and now Brian was a thug. <laughs> yes. And so now yes, since we were neighbors and friends, he would venture over there. So sometimes on rare, rare occasions, we would walk through Nicholson guards. But of course, you, your head's on a swivel and you wore your PF flyers mm -hmm. because you're ready to run. And, um, and so, um, but, the police were not my, never, I never, 
I never walked up in the morning thinking, oh, I'm going to get shot by a police officer today. I, that just never crossed my mind. I never thought I'm going to get pulled over and get harassed. The only time I feared the police was when I was going down Manchester Boulevard doing Mach 16, okay, you know, burning the paint off my car. I'm running the gutter past passing people. Now, my head's on a swivel. I'm looking for black and white because a black and white's going to pull me over and give me a ticket. And, and yes, a black and white one day did pull me over. I'm coming from Westchester. Of course, I'm doing like 6,000 miles in, per hour in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. Okay. He pulled. And he was the nicest cop in the world. Uh-huh. He, he goes, hey, didn't you see me sitting there? Dude, I'm going so fast, I can't see anything. It's a blur. Okay. You know, you, you remember Star Wars when he hits the afterburners? That's how it was. Okay. You know, I, I see nothing. That's a, I didn't even know where my brake pedal was, okay? You know, and uh, he actually gave me a ticket. And, uh, uh, but I was playing football and we were getting ready for the, the, the playoffs, which we didn't make. But he goes, hey, listen, I want to set your court date past your playoffs. So make wow. sure if you guys show up, okay, really nice guy, you know, but I deserve the ticket. But it was a real simple stop. He didn't, we talked football, matter of fact, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and, and to be honest with you, now, I can honestly say, and I know I'm getting off the beaten path with Alhambra, but I can honestly say, now, I've been driving for 50 years. Mm-hmm. And now, on a conservative estimate, conservative estimate, I've probably been stopped over my 50 times probably by law enforcement because I speed. Right. <laughs> I, I break the law. Oh, the light's red? Well, no, was there the intersection? I, just, I go faster. You know, hey, you know, stop sign means stop for somebody else. Okay. Yeah, you guys stop, not me. Okay. So I and so I'm and I'm I'm being I am being conservative when I say that I've probably been stopped fifty times by law enforcement over the years. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the last thirty years or so, I mean I, I carry a badge, but my whole point with that is that I've never had a bad encounter. Right. Obviously, I'm still alive and breathing. I, you know, uh, now have I encountered a couple of police officers that were a little, you know, whatever? Yeah, but you just ignore them, you know, and you just do what they say, and then you, yes sir, no sir, yes, I, I was speeding, you got me, yes sir, I, yeah, yes, you know, they, they asked me, well, did you, did you realize that you were doing 85? Oh, that's it. That was what Wow. I was going slow today, you know, uh, matter of fact, I just got started about two weeks ago in Chino Hills. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going down this back street. It's a little, it's a little cut off. There's a stop sign. Of course I didn't stop because there's no, no one there. And just sure enough, there's a cop sitting up off the hill. I saw, I pulled right over. I, I mean, I pulled over before he can even turn on this engine and I'm sitting there waiting for him and he pulls up behind and, and he's smiling and it's a white cop. And, and, um, he, I go, yeah, I know. I, I blew that stop and that sign. And he goes, Hey, he goes, yeah. He goes, did you see me? I, oh, yeah. So I, I just, <laughs> I forgot what the brick code was, <laughs> you know? And, uh, but he, he let me slide. I, I, yeah, you got me. I'm dead to rights. You, you got me. Uh, I blew the stop sign. Where do I sign? He goes, Hey, just st- next time just stop. Mm-hmm. That's all he said to him. See, this is fascinating. I mean, I say fascinating on one hand, it's not fascinating. Danny, because it's, uh, it, it's logical what you're saying, 
Well, I say fascinating. I say it's fascinating when you, when you juxtapose your experiences, like you said, conservatively, you say you've been stopped 50 times in your life as, you know, as being a black male motorist. And you've never had a negative experience, not to the extent where you've ever been physically abused or you've been even verbally abused, maybe a nasty cop, but that's about the end of it. Um, I guess, so it's juxtaposed to the claim that if you are a black motorist, especially a black male, you get stopped by a white cop, the chances of being injured or killed are super, super high. Either you're lying to the audience right now, uh, or, or what we hear from the media is not true. Um, and we all know where I fall and where you fall on this. It comes down to, yep, I blew a stop sign. Sir, where do I sign? Ma'am, where do I sign? Whatever. And then you let the cop do what the cop is supposed to do. Uh, the chance of actually being injured or killed by a cop, if you comply, even if the cop is wrong, are virtually zero, zero, especially in today's day and age where everything is recorded. I mean, a lot of law enforcement agencies have body cams, almost all of them have in-car cams and everybody, everybody on the highway is a, a self-designed publisher with their cell phones now. So it's just, it's, it's so aggravating. We hear this about law enforcement as if law enforcement, the problem. So fast forwarding to Alhambra and about a story you've told many times and never gets old is the Jack in the box story. Oh God, the Jack in the box story. And, and, and the reason I bring this one up we did talk about it. the reason I want you to talk about this is because this is a little bit different than a regular traffic stop. Right. This is something that really could have gone sideways. Right. right. But, but because of your behavior and the behavior of the people you were with, it didn't go sideways. Right. So you take it from there and give us the, give us a shorter version of that story. Okay. I, you know, it's kind of a funny story and praise my parents, but they're both expired you know and they've moved on so because my mom and dad of course mom and dad never knew about this but anyway <laughs> it's a I, think it, I believe it was a friday night myself two of our buddies that, that you know we're driving around in his <laughs> um in, in his um road runner we want something to eat it's probably midnight 12 30. we're at the san gabriel Alhambra border on Lost Tunis. There's a jack in the box there. So we pull it's in. Still there. It's still there. Absolutely. Even after always <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's still there. So so we pull in. You know, back in the day, you know, you go in there, you hit the little the little cord that lays across the, the driveway, and a ding 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 ding, and they go, man, take your order, please. Okay. Well, we we did the old ding 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 ding. Know what comes up now? By the way, for anybody like under oh, that's right, forty, yeah, right? Maybe, right? You don't know what that little ding, ding, ding cord is, right? Exactly. But it was a, it was a rubber, kind of like a smaller version of a water hose, right? Usually all black in color, and, you, and when you drove over it, it would set off a little electronic thing that would ring a bell, right, to let the attendant at the window know you were there. Right. So go ahead, right? And being back then, you know, like I say, I, I, I'm 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 aging myself. I'm I'm like six thousand. <laughs> years old here, but you know, you know, the, the guy would come out, may I take your order, please? That's what Jack's supposed to say. And so, <laughs> you know, dumb old clown, but anyway, so anyway, so we go over there and so we hit the cord, nothing happens. And so now we think that these guys are just being jerks because, oh, 12, 38, they, they want to, they want to close up and they don't want to feed us anymore. They're these bums. And so we're all pissed. And so I go, Hey, uh, 
go, hey, Steve, you know, why don't you, why don't you do a, why, why, why don't you jack, jack up? Okay. So, you know, he's in this big 383 Roadrunner and he backs on the cord. And like my Mark said, it's like, it's, it's thinner than a water hose. It's probably maybe a, a quarter inch in diameter. Probably half inch. Half inch maybe. So he, he we, we back those tires up over there and he does this big smoky burnout on it and just rips the cord. Rip. So, you know, Jack now has a vocal cord game. <laughs> so, so Jack can't go, man, take your word anymore. So we rip Jack's throat out. And so we go in for now because there's smoke everywhere. So we go up to the window. And so we're young. You know, there's three of us. We're all young. Hey, you know, come on out, you, you cheapskates. You know, make us some food. We were, we're hungry. Well, of course, they are coming out. And so we're, we're yelling. I'm leaning across the drivers. I, I, I got my head in there. I go, Steve, turn this thing around. So we go out and he turns back in. He comes. We're, now we're facing the wrong way. And I, I'm halfway in the window now. I could have crawled his eye. Where are you bums? You know, you guys, you guys don't want to work. You know, I'm hungry. Feed me now. No, let, me, let me intersect here. <laughs> he just gave me a detail on the story that I either didn't hear before or I forgot that you that guys made a U-turn. Yeah. So, so now you're you're in the wrong oh, way. We're coming the wrong in the way. And so so I'm leaning out the I'm leaning out the passenger. I'm halfway in the service window now. Okay, I mean, I could go in there and feed myself. I try to grab a cup and fill it with cup and taking it. I mean, I'm about feed me, feed me. We're all yelling, we're all laughing. So, of course, you know, don't know. No. I said, these are bombs. How dare they? So I said, Steve, roll the car. So Steve pulls the car up because, you know, Steve had the big 383, the big eyes. She just says, Another big smoky bird out. You can't even see anything. There's smoke going all the way. Don't stop. We're all laughing. Well, as we do this and we're getting ready to leave, guess what? Al Hambrook, San Gabriel, County Sheriffs, they, they all just come flying up there. And we're thinking, God, we, we're getting charged for murdering Jack. Okay. <laughs> and so, so we go in the parking lot, and of course, they come out with shotguns. They're out there. They're, I mean, and they aren't using kind language. Get the fuck on the ground. We're going to blow your fucking head. Now, I'm looking, I'm staring down this. This 45 auto, my hands are on the deck. We're all sitting there. Mm-hmm. So one had a, now I had just had shoulder surgery. I remember. And I'm, I'm in a sling. One at a time, they get out of the car. And I told the guy, I go, yeah, I just had surgery. Guess what? I flattened mm-hmm. out. So they get us all out there. They bring the guys, they, they bring the guys out there. I go, oh, there you guys are. <laughs> And, and, they, and they go, oh, those aren't the guys. And okay, so then they get us all up and they go, oh, yeah, there's a, a 211 just occurred. Now, tell, a 211 is an armed robbery. A 211 is an armed so robbery. Just, just to clarify what had happened just before Danny and his, you know, fellow uh, destroyers of public property, <laughs> private property, show up, an armed robbery had occurred. And that's why these employees wouldn't come to the window. It had nothing to do with them running over that that cord. They were frightened for their lives because they had just been held up at gunpoint right before right. you guys had pulled just, up. Just several minutes so right you, before. You, you talk about circumstances. You right. talk about coincidences. Right. And then here's Danny, one of like 13 black people in Alhambra, who's at the scene of an armed robbery. Right. And these cops show up. Right. I just wanted to clarify right. that for the right. listeners. So go ahead. Exactly. And 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 the thing is, is that I mean, stuff could have gone bad like right now because these guys came out locked and cocked. 
they weren't messing around. So a, a robbery just occurred. Mm -hmm. And so if we had done anything stupid, we probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. But we were, all of us were smart enough to know, don't do anything until we're told to do it. Don't get angry. Don't say anything. Even after they let us up, we weren't angry. We were, I'm listening, man. Listen, it's time for me to go home. Okay. I, I was just, I, I just want to go home. <laughs> okay. And I, I, I didn't even have time to argue with anybody. One of the police officers approached and said, yeah, 211 just occurred. And like, like you said, they were, you know, they, they called us, they were back there in the hiding. And so they, all we heard was robbery just occurred. We didn't do it. We thought we were going to get charged with murder, murder and jack. Okay. Right. And, and they, they, they could us and, and they say, get out of here, go home. We got it. We went straight home and never looked back. Never told mom or dad about it. I didn't want them to get involved because nothing they can do. Right. And, Plus, if they had uh, found out that you had been an accessory to destroying private property, they right? They would have murdered me. You would have asked the cops to come, come please back, pick me. Right. Yeah, right. I would have I gone and committed a 211 since I could go to jail and save for mom, especially mom. Dan was kind of more understanding. You know, yeah. I mean, he would have gotten angry, but mom would just, 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 like you said, was not tied down. I can beat him with, okay? Right. And so I would have gone out and committed a, a, a robbery just to save myself from her. Mm -hmm. And so, but, you know, once again, it, it shows you how things and the police officers have no idea what's going on right they're just reacting to radio calls it's it's such a great point i want you to finish that it's such a great point that they're simply responding right to a call for help so go ahead and yeah. you know more i mean i i spent a short period of time in law enforcement myself i mean these officers you did it for 33 years i mean 30, 30 years. It felt like 33. Right, exactly. But right. But, you know, these guys are, they're just on patrol or whatever they're doing. They're driving around just on patrol and they get a radio call. And the radio call, obviously, is, is just a, a fraction of what's actually going on. So you really have no idea what's really happening. You get a radio call. This is what the dispatcher is telling you. But you really still don't know what's going on. So they're just coming up here and reacting to what, they see and what the radio calls all about. It's not like they don't have any, uh, these, 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 uh, this, uh, perception, it, it, there's nothing that's preconceived. Right. It's just, I get a radio call and I'm going there. It's just like when I spent 30 years as a fireman, we get a call, rescue 26. This is what the call says. Now, we're just, okay, the call says short of breath. Now, that's all it says. When we get there, nine out of 10 times, it wasn't short of breath. That's how they called it in. We go there and that, you get there and it's like, it's something, oh, I, I, I hurt my toe. And so I can't breathe. And, you know, it's hard, it's hard for me, me to breathe because I bumped my toe on the chair and it hurt so bad I can't breathe. But that, but they, they do that to get the response. Mm -hmm. And so, but like I said, the, the officers kept their cool. Uh, we kept our cool, most importantly, yeah. and we followed instructions. We were delayed for maybe five minutes or whatever. They got them out. And at the end of the day, everybody was fine. Went home safe. Went home safe. Everybody went home safe. And even, even under those heated, tense circumstances, they said the cops kept their cool. You guys kept your cool. 
And at the end of the day, everybody was safe. And this is, this is at the core, you know, talk about Danny, talk about self-policing, doing the right thing. You know, unlike my brother here, stop at the stop sign. But you know what, if you do blow a stop sign and you get stopped, whose fault is that? The cop's fault? Right. Really? Exactly. No, right. no, it's right. your fault. Exactly. And, and just like you said, Hey, you know, you got me, where do right. I sign? Right. And the cop either gives you a warning or they give you a citation or whatever it is, but it's not the cop's fault. And when you see, when you see compliance, you also see everybody going home safe. Right. So, uh, you know, when we hear these things about, about cops being the cause of so much destruction in our communities of, of color, it just, it makes my skin crawl because I know personally that it's a lie. It's a slander of law enforcement. Right. It's absolute slander. When you pick out a certain cop, a specific cop, and we see it on TV, you know, occasionally, and, and it is occasionally, when you look at the number of stops that, that cops make or calls respond to, when you see that occasional, very, very occasional, very rare cop, then we, we, we should deal with that cop appropriately. But that's not representative. Right. That's not representative. Um, you know, I have my own experience in Alhambra, but again, be, being, being seven and a half years younger than you are, uh, mine are a lot more limited. But I, I had my encounters. And by the way, I'll be totally frank. There are a couple of times I got stopped in Alhambra, you know, two in the morning, you know, drop, drop my girlfriend off at, at 19 years old, driving dad's Cadillac. You know, I'm thinking maybe the guy did stop me because black guy in a Cadillac at two in the morning, whatever. And, and I did ask a couple of times. And then what happened though? Right. What happened? Hey, where are you coming? Well, Hey, I just dropped my girlfriend off. And uh, okay. Let me see your, your ID. Let me see your registration. Well, we gave him to it. All right. Have a nice night. So if the worst thing gets happened to you is you get profiled, that's the worst thing in life. You know what? It's, it's not too horrible. Right. And again, in my life, it was very, very rare. A couple of times in my whole life, they felt that may have happened. I know you're enjoying this episode with my brother. I know I am. And it's so good. We're actually going to make two shows out of this, two episodes. So stand by for episode two coming up for our next release.